Welcome to Women in Chemicals, Woman of the Week. I'm Amelia. And I'm Kylie. And we're joined today by Sandra Wisniewski, who is the President for Materials Technology at WR Grace. Good morning, everyone. Afternoon as well. Great to have you here, Sandra. This week's episode is sponsored by Boaz Partners. Boaz Partners is a global retained executive recruitment firm providing companies with custom recruiting solutions in specialty chemicals, engineering materials, animal health, and the life sciences industry. Founded on the pillars of swiftness, integrity, and transparency, companies can rely on Boas partners for their vast industry knowledge and proven search process to reach their talent and hiring needs. Thanks, Amelia and Sandra. Thanks again so much for taking the time today to share your story with our community. It looks like we've got a great live turnout today, so I'm really excited to have a chat with you uh, and learn your story. So um, we'll kick it off, Sandra, with uh, enabling you to introduce yourself to those listening in. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into your current position today. Excellent. Thanks, Kylie. And, and welcome, everybody. I'm really excited for the opportunity uh, that's been created for me to share my story and look forward to any questions you may have and how I can help you. And so um, my career started as an engineer um, that, and I built a career in the back of the house. So quality, R&D, manufacturing operations, project management. And then, it, and, and then at the urging of one of my sponsors, went and got an executive MBA at Kellogg and then moved to the front of the house. So operations, doing home patient deliveries, uh, for critical care patients on dialysis at home, and then began turning around um, and transforming performance for businesses in uh, the medical device, pharmaceuticals, distribution, and then ultimately at WR Grace. And so what I'm really excited to share is that I think building a strong foundation can allow you to transport your skills and capabilities into both changing functional roles, but also industries or market sectors. Great. So Tanda, let's talk a little bit about your diverse career experience, and we'll dig into it with a series of questions we have today, but um, how important or impactful do you think career diversity, whether it is within other companies or within um, different markets or industries, how impactful is that or important is that for your own career growth based on your experience? And then would you say that having various roles within one company uh, is enough, isn't enough? What are your thoughts there? Yeah, so I've, I've been lucky enough. I spent the first 25 years of my career at, at uh, Baxter Healthcare. So I've had both the experience of longevity in a company and then changing uh, roles and, and companies. And so I think there's a balance to be gained. Um, what I believe and what I've experienced is that within one company, having some track record, building your reputation, it risks, risk reduces for you as an individual changing functional roles. So imagine going from R&D to manufacturing or manufacturing into a commercial role, um, your reputation, your brand, people know who you are. And typically you're able to discern and learn more about the company. And so by changing roles, I think it makes you more well-rounded, you know, walking a mile in somebody else's shoes. It may not be where you want to spend your career, but it certainly rounds you out. Um, changing companies, I think, actually gives you a different perspective. So it's a new ecosystem. You can reinvent yourself. So as you're trying to hone your leadership skills 
or challenge yourself in new functional areas, as you change companies, you actually get to adapt to what is the culture you're joining? How do you build rapport with people that don't know anything about you? And then how do you gain followership if it's a leadership role or build um, connections with your peers in a way that actually accelerates performance for whatever function or business role you're in? So I think there's things to be gained in both experiences, um, but it's about how do you become more well-rounded for ultimately where you decide to go with your career? Yeah, I think you make such a good point about how changing roles within a company reduces the, it's less risky a little bit is kind of what I picked up. So you have more flexibility because you've built up this rapport, you've used your networks within the organization, but since you have that trust or rapport within an organization, you can take those risks because people still trust your work ethic and your ability to function within that ecosystem that you've discussed. I think that's super interesting to take those risks, maybe highlighting taking those risks within one company that you've got that rapport with before considering maybe switching new companies where you can apply those multiple hats. That's such a good point. So Sandra, the next question we have for you is, you know, still associated with your career journey a little bit. So um, when you first started your career journey, um, think right when you graduated, you know, um, did you ever envision being in your current position today? And if so, what kind of actions or decisions were you intentional about making throughout your career to get to where you are today? Yeah, so so I absolutely didn't envision being in the role I'm in today. Um, leading a team, maybe I would say, um, maybe a, a bit of perspective for all of the, the folks on the call. When I graduated from University of Wisconsin-Madison as a mechanical engineer, there were four of us out of 394 people graduating. Um, and so my goal was to get a job. So it was a really bad year to graduate. Um, and then once I got a job, my next goal was, could I make $50,000 a year? And so um, in hindsight, I probably should have aspired to more when I got started. But what, what did evolve as I was working is I really enjoyed enlivening teams and, and peers to continue to um, strive for excellence. So in most of the roles that I've had, I've had an opportunity to really look at accelerating functional performance um, think project management or an R&D team, or as I progressed, the ability to, to have businesses transform their performance. So do the unthinkable for whatever business unit I was leading. And, and so what I found is a, a driver, really, as I began to understand my own drivers, is that transformation, that art of the possible, is one of those things that drives me. And so uh, my progression from kind of the back of the house, as I described it, to the front of the house was really about the journey of how do I influence the direction of a business performance? And so those career moves were about gaining experiences, um, rounding out my capability set so that I had more influence at the table and the mm-hmm. ability to really articulate where did we actually have to make changes so that a business could perform. Um, And then building that personal credibility. And so I am a believer that um, the more experiences you have, if you're desiring to lead a business, the better you are at appreciating those folks on your leadership team and the challenges they have in their function or in delivering against the aspiration that you have. 
So I have a question, a follow-up question for you, Sandra. So can you speak to this experience of how you've identified your career journey moving from the back to the front of the house Mm -hmm. and talk a little bit to what you would perceive to be some of those transferable skills? So what what did you carry with you when going from back to back to front or opposite? Yeah. So, you know, I think that um, foundational in leadership roles. So if you're functionally leading a project management organization or an R&D team, you still have to have good financial capability. And so you can begin to build financial skills in managing a budget within your function. And I think sometimes that can be seen as rather mundane and boring and an add-on task. But if you view it from the perspective of, am I understanding the financial capability? Am I beginning to build a financial understanding of managing a budget, managing people to a budget, and then showcasing that skill to say, well, where else could this transfer? So moving into manufacturing where you have bigger capital projects, you need to understand throughput. There's this underlying capability of analytics that's not just, is it a functional P&L, but it's taking your analytical skills and applying them to multiple areas. So whether it's financial performance, manufacturing performance, forecasting. So then as you move to the front of the house, you're able to say, look, I may not have owned a PL yet, but let me share with you how good my financial foundation is. And that's why I believe I can actually run a PL today, right? Because okay. like many jobs, you have to have your first one. Like somebody has to take a risk and allow you to be a manager the first time. Somebody yeah. has to give you a PL job and you don't typically get PL experience and then become a PL leader. So, yeah. I, so for me, it's about, you know, how do you think about those skills? And then, you know, in the back of the house, people that sit in the front of the house say, oh, have you ever had to interface with customers? All right. If you're an R&D in manufacturing, there's always opportunities. So raise your hand, understand the customers that drive the business. It doesn't mean that you're negotiating contracts, but what it means is you understand where your products actually are being used and appreciate Mm -hmm. that at the end of the day, you can design things, manufacturing can make them, but sales and marketing can help market them, but sales in front of the customer is how you make money. And so, you know, I, I, while it sounds really simple, I think the transferable skills are, how do you put things kind of in your capability set that you're able to um, kind of pivot and then apply into a role that's posted at a company or in the current company that makes people say, I'm willing to take a risk on you. Yeah. So kind of an alignment and transitioning into another theme we want to cover with you today, Sandra, is, you know, you've spoken so well to what appears to me is that you've mastered this art of communicating what skills are transferable to you in whatever position. Um, So let's talk a little bit about some of the statistics. So this year in McKinsey's Women in the Workplace study, uh, they highlighted that only one in four C-suite leaders is a woman. Um, And and you are a leader and, and sitting in front of us and willing to share with us your experience and your advice and guidance. So can you talk to us a little bit about um, how you overcame some challenges in reaching your current position, particularly in an industry that do the you can see the facts um, is male dominated? And what do you think we need to do as an industry to get a little bit more women in these senior leadership roles? Yeah, so. um... 
so let me answer the second part of the question first, and then I'll go back to me. How's sure. that? So I, I think, how do we get more women in leadership roles in the chemical industry or in, in reality in almost any industry? And I think it starts with, uh, as leaders, male, female, other um, minority groups, we really need to step back and say, are we slating candidate pools that allow you to choose from the best candidate, but it's reflective of kind of your population pool? I always say, you know, gender is a very obvious one, right? It's 50% of the population is male, 50% is female. If your candidate slate is all males, you're only gonna pick from the candidate slate you have. And so as a senior leader, I think it's really important that we require that we have a diverse slate. But in that diverse slate of candidates, we really need to ensure that the candidates that are put forward that are diverse meet the capability for the role. So that they actually, we're selecting people that have the right skills, we're actually grooming people and highlighting them in our own organization to say, look, we have a minority group. We have women that are on the cusp of being ready or are ready now for their next role. How do we help elevate that discussion so that we take that into consideration when we fill our own roles? Um, and, then, and then as a leader, how do we encourage, mentor, coach women around us to say, it's okay, Here's, there's 10 top skills required for this role. You have eight of them. Yeah. Put your name in the hat. Go mm -hmm. talk to the hiring manager, ask what are the top three? Yeah. And then if you really believe you're capable, put your name forward, how can I help you? And so how do you help people groom their own view of what they bring to the table so they are a qualified candidate? And then, so what have I done? I, you know, I, I think that um, there's always jobs nobody wants. So I'm a big, huge fan of underdogs. So whether it's a sports team, a career opportunity, um, I often would raise my hand for the job nobody else wanted. Uh, my theory was there was only one way to go, but up usually. And so if you went in with a positive attitude and you charted a path and you, you know, helped the organization, your peers, those you were, you were leading, see the possibility, people wanna be on a winning team. They wanna feel like when they come to work, people appreciate what they do. So um, I took those jobs because they were typically jobs nobody else wanted. Um, mm -hmm. I took them because typically they were teams that want to do good work and felt like they weren't getting um, the support, the sponsorship to do that. And then really, then you, then you appreciate what people are doing. And so those opportunities that I've taken have built new, the next opportunity, right? So at Baxter, I helped um, turn around a business was my first PL job. And on that job, it opened the next door to help transform the performance of a much larger billion dollar global business. And it was purely because it was a job nobody wanted. And then when it actually came to fruition, people were like, wow, this could work. Hey, mm -hmm. what do you think of this business? And so I think that's where thinking about how do you build your brand and your reputation, it's important that you think to yourself, okay, this will open doors for me. Yeah. Are they the doors I want opened? 
um, is how I probably could have been more thoughtful about the jobs I took versus, oh, I see nobody wants that job. Hey, pick me, um, which is a bit of how I started on the path. But in hindsight, it fits my kind of DNA really well. Definitely. Sounds like you're comfortable with some with what some folks aren't necessarily at the onset comfortable with, which is interesting. And I'm sure it comes with experience, but <laughs> putting yourself in those uncomfy situations has definitely been a success factor for you. What I appreciate in your comments there, Sandra, is you talk about you show your organization the possibility that teams have that might not have had the sponsorship or support that they felt they needed to be successful. And I think that speaks to like your people leadership skills. So that's huge. I think I, I really appreciate hearing uh, an executive speak to the importance of what I'm considering, maybe building up the morale and the passion within teams to be successful. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's huge. I think we're navigating through some crazy situations today, and I think that's only going to continue. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to have that be a priority or something that you address to being part of your success story. Um, I appreciate you calling that out. Um, Thank you. Amelia, do you have any comments? No, I really liked the train of thought you were walking down, Kylie. And the idea of taking these jobs that nobody else wants is really interesting. And it fits really nicely with your comment about the art of the possible and this mindset of striving for excellence. So I guess when you come into these roles that you know, nobody else wants, there's maybe financial issues or uh, struggles within the organizations. How do you communicate to your team members um, and give them this strive for excellence mentality? Because I feel in those situations that can be exceedingly difficult. So just wondering if you have any advice. I know Kylie and I are both kind of recently first time managers. How do you really encourage people and get them to adapt and, and take this mindset with you? Yeah. You know, I, I think it's a conversation, you know, the, the art of the possible can seem like a, a, a trite statement. And yet I think it's about engaging with um, your leadership team or the team that you're leading, because it's not always in today's world, they're not always direct reports, but they may be in your functional team. And talking to them about, hey, what's gone wrong, right? Because there's always a history and a heritage. It's not as if like a business sprung up and suddenly it wasn't performing, typically, at least the ones I've been involved with, or a functional group. And saying, look, here's the vision I have. I believe this business can be fill in the blank. This function could be seen as, um, you know, best in class. How do we get there? Um, and then the other question I always ask is, what have, you, what have you been told no to? And I'll stand up in a town hall and say that. And so I, like the, the business I'm, I'm running now, I said, oh, this business, as an example, we came in, the leadership team and I charted a strategy, we're unveiling it in a town hall. And I said, you know, and our goal was to be a billion dollar business, uh, both through organic growth and inorganic growth. And there was, you know, a very seasoned individual in the audience. They put their hand up and they said, I've heard this story four times before. And your first thought is, oh, this is great. It's on, you know, a live Teams meeting. Wah, wah, wah. Okay. And so I said, all right, well, tell me why it won't work. And they were like, what? And I said, well, okay, so you've heard the story before. Clearly, we failed before. Let's talk through why is it different this time? Let's talk through what are the foundational building blocks and how do we chart success? So if I can envision the future of a billion dollars 
and we're sitting at 440 or 470 million dollars and you're thinking it's just not possible let's identify the mile markers do we need to re-enliven R&D? What does that look like? Do we need to improve our strategic understanding of our customers because we service 29 different end market segments? Or if you're a functional group, how do you actually think about the success you'll have along the way? We'll have X number of new um, products come out of R&D. And then you talk about those successes so people can see it's not a fantasy, it's a reality. And uh -huh. you listen. You do skip level meetings and you, you ask people, come back to the table. You've been told no three times, ask again. We won't just tell you no as a leadership team, we'll tell you why. Or we'll tell you if not now, when? And, and I, what I found is it, it allows people to revisit things that they feel are unresolved. Uh -huh. It allows people to buy into what's different. And then as a leader, it allows you to listen to what did you miss when you built your strategy? What are the concerns that you have to address along the way? Um, and then you can showcase that to the, to the entire organization to build momentum and success. I love this comment around enabling people within your function, your business, whatever it might be to buy into the changes mm -hmm. because without those folks, moving that needle is gonna be really difficult, right? Um, so thinking truly about how to enable them to, to buy into that and sponsor what you're, you're communicating to them as well, working hard to achieve. So, um, really great point, Sandra, I want to kind of pivot to an interesting, so, uh, before we jumped on the interview, we were chatting about how much unique, um, research we've been able to locate about your background and your story. So I want to jump to a, a little bit of a unique part of your story and talk about what you've learned from it. So um, competitive sports have been a foundational experience for you growing up, Sandra, including being a nationally ranked Olympic lifter. Yeah. So can we talk about what traits or skills that you were able to develop in your competitive sports experience um, and how those have helped your professional success? Yeah, you know, um, sure. I, you know, I, I think that uh, as an athlete that um, I've played on teams, I've been an individual contributor on teams, um, and then uh, Olympic weightlifting, you win both by yourself as well as with your team. So um, I think appreciating that athletics, you have to actually have resiliency, you have to train every day, right? You can't show up at a sport, you can't run a marathon without training. Um, and, and so Olympic lifting for me, so it sounds a lot like my, I guess my academic career in that I got into Olympic lifting on a dare. Um, somebody told me I wasn't very fit. <clears throat> and so I said, ah, I can do this. How hard can it be? So at the, at my first Olympic lifting, um, uh, meet that I was at, uh, it was by age group and weight class. So um, I was competing against teenage boys. So it was fascinating. And I helped take the sport um, nationally and, and actually split it. So women competed against women and men competed it against men. And it was very much a precursor to CrossFit, quite frankly. And so what I, what I learned is that, you know, there's a lot of, um, I guess, foundational work that needs to be done when you step on a stage. 
And I, I think that parallels uh, career path planning. How do you build foundational capabilities across multiple functions to ultimately do the things you want to do if you want to run a business? And then how do those skills and capabilities kind of ebb and flow based on what you need to do in any given day? And so um, Olympic lifting is snatch and clean jerks of two very different movements. One is all about strength. The other is about strength and finesse. Um, and, and yet if your timing is off, you can be really well trained and still fail. And so, you know, when you fail, what do you learn? Do you train harder? Do you prepare yourself differently for the day of competition? And then how do you learn from those mistakes? And so that parallels into the business world, of course, because we all make mistakes. But if it has you walking away, it's tough to get better if you walk away. And so the resiliency of mistakes happen. Um, there's times where when you, you, know, you show up for a meeting, you think it's about one thing and it ends up being something different. How do you actually adapt? And then how do you condition so that you can be more um, agile in the discussions on any given day? So um, yeah, Olympic lifting was, was more than I bargained for, I think some days. <laughs> I am shocked to hear that this came to be through a dare. And I know Amelia, I see you came off mute as well. Yeah, no, I love this. Um, so I was a, I'm a reformed CrossFitter, but on my reformation, I did do Olympic lifting right before COVID for about six months. And I really loved it because you can't walk up to the platform and think like, okay, press through your feet and now like shrug and then pull under the bar. Like it's muscle memory, it's reps, it's drilling and going through each of these small infinite movements over and over and over until your body really knows it. Mm -hmm. And it made me realize about myself that almost all success in life is yeah. very similar to this, yeah. even if it's not physical. So like with my work opportunities or even having hard discussions, it's about going through and finessing these small uh, pieces of everyday challenges mm -hmm. so that when you're in these more, high stress moments of a competition or in the midst of a business problem uh, or in a very tough conversation, you have this muscle memory within you that knows what to do um, and really helps you adapt a lot quicker. So it was really cool to see when we saw these questions come over that you Olympic lifted. And I was really looking forward to seeing kind of how this crossed over into some of your more professional success. Yeah, I, I think you're spot on, Amelia, in that, you know, there's a component of muscle memory. And you're right, regardless of what the sport is, if you're a tennis player, or a golfer, uh, Olympic lifting, so whether really mainstream or more obscure sports, uh, I think it's, it is that that fine tuning that muscle memory that allows you to adapt and be agile to the other inputs that change. And, um, you know, Olympic lifting has a lot of technique, even when you watch it, you may not, you know, sense that right away, but there's a lot of, a lot of technique and a, and a lot of intellectual energy about understanding how does your body adapt? So, um, yeah, absolutely. Great. I knew Amelia, you would have some comments there. Cause I remembered that 
you have gone through this journey. So thanks for sharing, Sandra. And thanks, Amelia, for sharing your experience. Um, Sandra, you shared in our preparation for today's discussion that uh, your thoughts on success. So in order to succeed, one must know when to lead versus when to be a part of a team. So can we talk a little bit about any guidance you might have for our community on what to consider when they might be looking for opportunities to lead? And when might someone focus on being part of just a team instead? And I should probably correct that. It's not just a team. It's just being a, a different perspective. So being part of a team instead. Yeah. You know, I, I think there's a balance and, and, um, and I think it can ebb and flow in your career. It can ebb and flow. Are you, you know, what type of role are you in? Are you managing teams? Are you leading a specific team? But, but I think that there is really um, times where as a leader, and if it's, if it's in your kind of functional vertical or it's in your business unit, that Leading doesn't have to be a demonstrative, you know, we shall go do this. Leading can be, I need to get a group of people in the room that have a diverse view and have them brainstorm about where do we go. But at the end of the meeting, you're still the one who closes, who wraps up and sets the direction. But, it, and, and, you know, there are times that absolutely, you know, you need to be demonstrative. But I think the flip of that is you can be in a room with the same team trying to solve a different problem where what you're asking is one of your team members to be the leader. And then I, I you know, I, I think there's a level of respect. There's a level of, I'll call it seating control um, that you have to be thoughtful about for that to be successful. And, and signaling your team or the other folks in the room that you're a participant, you're not the leader, and being thoughtful about when does your voice get heard. And so there's times that I will very purposefully not actually share my opinion or my perspective in a meeting where I'm a participant mm -hmm. until the room has actually kind of settled on some direction or they're stalling out. And then I'll bring to the forefront something that's top of mind for me. Um, now, if any of my team members are on this call, they're probably laughing like, oh, it depends on the day. And I was like, I'm not always perfect at it, um, but it's something that I really do try and make sure people have a voice at the table and then bring forward people who are maybe a bit um, reticent or conservative and wanting to share. And so I think it's more about taking a facilitation role than it is about, you know, kind of fading into the backdrop. Yeah, I think you speak to these phases of leadership, right? So taking like a front and center leadership role versus um, this more taking a step back, but facilitating or enabling others to be at the front. And like you said, so we were just talking about this muscle memory aspect. So for some, pe some people, you know, voicing their opinion in a large group might not be something that they're comfortable with and can sit with and is not part of their muscle memory yet. But for you to be a, an enabler or a facilitator of that or to create a space that welcomes that mm -hmm. um, and just being aware of that for others as a people leader, I think that's huge. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I think sometimes, and, and it's funny because I'm actually a painful introvert that gets trapped in an extrovert's body, um, sure. mostly because in the workplace, you, you have to, especially as a business unit leader, you have to be, you know, present and engaged. Um, 
but it but it also allows me to kind of see people from a different side, especially if they're more reserved and ensuring they get a voice because there are mm -hmm. quiet leaders that have a lot to add. And so creating space for them, allowing them to showcase their skills, their thinking, their contributions is important to me because I think we get to a better place as a business and as a team. Definitely. I think that's some great knowledge to share with this community. Thanks. Mm -hmm. So a couple more questions for you, Sandra. Um, we've talked a lot about high performance um, and, and your name and how that's associated very well within this industry. Um, what strategies might you be comfortable sharing um, in how you use those to instill that within others and how to build a culture of excellence? Yeah, you know, so um, I, I think that a, a culture of excellence comes with a culture of candor. Um, and, and so I always say I'm really comfortable in candor. I try and help folks that are um, maybe a, a, a bit more um, uncomfortable with that to say, look, for me, it's about the discussion. Um, as people get to know me, so earlier in our conversation, you asked, what is it like? What do you gain from entering a new company? What you gain is, how do you help people understand who you are? Right. So when you spend 25 years or 30 years with one company, they know you. They may love you. They may not. But they know you. When you show up at a new company, people are trying to figure out who are you. And so for me, I spend time and energy as I get to know people and teams sharing. Look, for me, it's about the discussion. Ninety eight percent of the time I'll put a stake in the table on a topic. I have an opinion. I always have an opinion. It doesn't mean it's right but I want to have the discussion. So convince me to move that stake around, right? Pretend you're at the beach and you put a beach umbrella in the ground, move it over here. Yeah, I don't agree with you. Let's move it over here. Let's move it here. We'll find the best route if we have the conversation. And so if you feel like you come to me and you're like, okay, this is where I want to go. And I'm like, eh, I don't know about that. It's actually not because I don't agree with you. It's because I want to actually pressure test what are the other avenues. And, and helping people to appreciate that about me allows them to kind of blossom to be their best. And so my goal is always to bring out people's strength and allow them a platform to showcase who they are and how it helps the company. And then from an excellence perspective, I... Um, I share up front, right? I, I have a quest for excellence. What does that mean? It's continuous improvement. What does it feel like? Well, I work hard to acknowledge where, where we've made progress, but I'm always going to ask for more. Yeah. So it's okay to tell me we're not going to do that next week, Sandra. That's going to happen in like two years. And I'll say, ah, can we do it next year? And so it, you know, for me, it's about how do we make it happen? Because the faster it happens, the faster we accelerate to the next phase. And that's exciting to me. Um, and then I always count on my team to tell me when I'm pushing too hard, too fast, that, that there's, um, it creates disruption in the organization. And, and I really believe the people leading change are most comfortable with the change. Appreciating that everybody around you may not feel that way, and adjusting accordingly, recalibrating what it feels like is important. And then acknowledging it, you know, so whether that's in a town hall, uh, a year end message through skip meetings or through leadership discussions to say, 
Yeah, my bad. I was pushing too hard. Oof. Yeah, I don't think that timeline's attainable. How do we rescope? How do we rescale? How do we help the team recognize that we heard? And then you adjust and then you move on. And so um, I think for me, it's about owning who I am and the quest and the journey for excellence is real. Um, and then being willing to, to kind of recalibrate. Yeah. So I, I was typing before you even answered. So you answered what my this quest for excellence, right? But how do you acknowledge that excellence is always going to be changing? So there's never going to be like this moment where it's, we've reached what success looks like. We've reached the top um, based on this mindset. So I really appreciate you acknowledging this, you know, importance of let's recognize where success has been in these phase gates or in these success moments. Let's recalibrate and look back on what we've accomplished, these feedback cycles, things like that. I think that's so important important um, as, you know, someone that reports up through a leadership team that has priorities for us to stay motivated. Let's revisit all of the successes and acknowledge where we've made mistakes and learn from those too. So I appreciate that part of your quest to excellence as well. Yeah. And I think it's a bit like Amelia said earlier is that, you know, the parallel to being an athlete is, you know, an Olympic lifting or, or, or other um, kind of scored sports, shall we say, you can show up one day and you can, you know, you can clean and jerk 200 pounds and you're on top of the world. And the next day you show up and you can't do but 150 and you're like, I'm the same person I was yesterday. What the heck? And then you realize, oh, maybe I was out late. Maybe I didn't really eat very well. I didn't really sleep. And you're like, huh, you can either let it kind of drag you down or you can say, all right, what am I going to do about this to get better? And so that ability to turn the man, there's always setbacks, right? There's always turbulence on a pathway, whether as an athlete or as a business leader. So how do you actually respond to it is really important. And how do you recognize you can be your best one day, slide back and you need to go at it again. And so, you know, through that, I think you can um, kind of improve who you are and you can improve a team's performance. You can improve an organization's ability to respond, react, and then deliver, ultimately. Absolutely. Amelia, do you have any comments before I jump? I really liked your commentary, Sandra, around the fact that those who um, are most familiar with the change or who are deciding on the change are the most comfortable with it. And it reminds me a lot of this journey that Kylie and I have been on with Women in Chemicals. So two years in, we co-found this two years ago, really just the two of us making all of these decisions. We've grown to a leadership team of nine where everybody's making decisions now. And there's a lot of action and a lot of activity happening all over the place and really being able to make sure that we are communicating as a team and making more consensus-based decisions has been growing pains, maybe not pains, but learning experiences, I think both for Kylie and I and for our entire leadership team, because we've changed how we're making decisions even. Um, and so there's dialogue around, you know, decisions that we used to make. Now that's your function, you own it. Um, and then the communication around that, there is a little bit sometimes of a curse of knowledge because Kylie and I We'll talk about, you know, a new program or a new opportunity. We'll make a decision. We'll start actioning on it. 
And then because we're used to only having to communicate between the two of us, we won't be communicating outward properly to our leadership team and, until something happens. So we're very a little bit reactive in that sense. Yeah. So do you have any advice for how we could be more proactive in making sure that we're managing the change better for not just ourselves, but our entire team? And then how we communicate that to make sure that we're really being effective in our change management. Yeah, you know, I, I think change management can be tricky and, and I appreciate the fluidity of the situation you're de describing. Um, you know, I, and, and growth from kind of a team of two that, that are kind of linked at the hip and probably have complementary skills from what little I've been exposed to the two of you and observed. Um, and now you have a, a, you know, a team of nine that, that it's, um, as you said, just growing pains. It's how do you work together? What do you communicate when? I think there can be benefit if you stop and say, okay, if we think about change management, what's changing? What are the biggest dynamics? And have that dialogue with the top nine of you and say, look, there's going to be times that we are driving these decisions and we, it's an inform. And so, uh, you know, I think about it as a decision matrix, like what things have you delegated? Who's got the decision rights on something? And then what, what is your commitment to each other and the team on what and when and how it's communicated? And, and so I think being able to be kind of true to those commitments. So is it a you know, standing staff meeting? Is it a weekly update? Is it a monthly, depending on the cadence of change? But here's the top four things that as an organization we're developing and we've divided and conquered. So these two are going to be covered by these individuals and Kylie mm -hmm. and I are going to be covering these so that people understand that if there's a decision that comes from somewhere that seems out of um, sync with what's been communicated, they can be asking the question. Um, and, and then do you pause and reflect on what needs to be shared versus what needs to be communicated, right? So I think there's a, when you think about decision rights and decision making, um, there's times people may want to be involved, especially if you have a, a team that uses consensus decision making. But at the end of the day, if it's not their decision rights, maybe it's, you know, you're starting to create some hierarchy in your decision making. And so I think that decision rights is always helpful from my perspective, because people are clear on who's making what decisions. The change management, I think, you know, how, how can you be intentional about those communications? And is it a cadence or is it on critical projects that you're advancing or, or concepts for the expansion of the business? All really good topics. I'm writing notes specific so that we can apply, Amelia. Uh, <laughs> and this ties really well into our, we're coming to the end of our discussion. So we have some time for the community and those listening in to, to ask some questions. So feel free if you're uh, wanting to ask a question, folks, you can ping that right in the chat or we'll have some time afterwards. But um, kind of in alignment with this topic around change management, um, we've had this buzzword of transformation be discussed throughout our interview, Sandra. So uh, in an article uh, posted by Pharma's Almanac, it describes you, Sandra, as a transformational executive. Mm. What does transformation mean to you? And can you share a bit more about your process that you, you use to identify where transformation is needed, how you drive transformation, and how you ensure that transformation is sustained within your teams? Yeah. So um, 
so with regards to being a transformational leader, I think every um, situation, whether they've been functional transformations or business transformations, it starts with what I would call an honest assessment. And some of that is through observation, listening, and learning, and kind of documenting what I would call as the hypothesis for change. Sometimes it's I've been recruited in because a business is underperforming and they want me to transform the performance. So it's more uh, acutely obvious is what I would say. And yet I, I think it can be interesting as a new set of eyes, um, whether that's you know 25 years in a company, you take on a different functional role or changing companies. For me, it's, it's a bit of the same process. It's form my own hypotheses, work with my leadership team and peers to say, what have you seen? Here's what I'm thinking. And then reacting to and, and learning and fine tuning kind of what I think the hypothesis for change is, and then what's the process. And then charting a strategic plan that allows us, that's multi-year, that allows uh -huh. us to chart that pathway. And then once you have a strategic plan over a multi-year period, some companies call them long-range plans, but even transformation within a function can have that same type of process. And then work with the team to say, okay, what do we need to do? Are there fundamental underlying processes that we need to either establish or revisit or improve? Mm -hmm. And then articulating what are the priorities to do to make those improvements? And then what's the kind of change communication, Amelia, like you were just asking, how do you actually communicate the change? Well, you start with what's that story you're trying to tell? Is there an aspiration for the business? Has it been heard before and not delivered? Or is it so far forgotten that you need to reestablish the capability? And then talk about how long and how far the journey is. And I think at least the transformations I've done, they're not usually like a light switch, like you walk in the door and whoa, it's great. It's usually, hey, three, four years from now, here's what we will see. And then from there, as, as you build that transformation journey and you're building fundamentals, how do you start articulating the benefit of the fundamentals? So either through measurement and KPIs, or which then kind of leads to this process improvement, or through identifying the end result on the business in this case is delivering better financials. Um, and then be humble enough to say when things aren't working or you have to change the pathway. Um, and then sustainability for me is, can a business continue to perform if I move into a different role or a different company? And so um, process is important. Sustainable processes and systems are how things kind of have longevity beyond what a leader's um, strength is. And, and then you need the organization to believe, right? It's interesting if I believe, but I can't do it by myself. And so engaging and activating an organization against a strategic plan that's multi-year is foundationally how you improve. And then those folks can influence others. So that's kind of my, I guess, my methodology, I guess, to your yeah. question. And how does, how does it sustain is through processes, not just yeah. people. Mm -hmm. Yep. That's quite the process that you've established. And I can tell that it's like almost subconscious for you based on how you've communicated it to us today. And I think that that's just a great thing to have in your toolbox um, to apply 
habitually, subconsciously or not. Um, so Sandra, we're coming to the conclusion. I see some questions coming in. So thanks to those that are putting questions in the chat for us to address in a couple minutes here, but we wanted to create a space, Sandra, for you uh, to provide any advice that you might have for those listening in and within our community. Um, maybe especially for those that are, you know, aspiring to reach that C-suite or senior executive level like yourself. So want to open up the floor for you for any closing comments, advice, or topics to address to those listening in and in our community. Yeah, sure. Well, thank, thank you for that. I'll try and keep it brief so we can get to some of the questions. You know, I, I think for me is um, I'm a believer is it doesn't necessarily matter where you start, right? We all start a career somewhere. What are the things that bring out the passion in you, the energy in you that are applicable to moving into a C-suite? So whether that's a a CEO, a business unit leader, the head of manufacturing operations, um, supply chain, HR, finance, I think the journey can be the same in, in, in that um, kind of at the highest level steps, right? Obviously, the roles you have would be different. But it's about how do I become, ask yourself, how do I become as well-rounded as I can be and gain the experiences I need to be in whatever role you aspire to be in. And that timing is gonna be different for everybody. The one piece that I try and appreciate is every sector in the industry has different capabilities they lean on. And, and every company does as well. And so where in one company and sector in the pharma world, they love people who come out of sales roles and really understand the customer. And so if you want to lead one of those organizations, how do you gain those experiences? There's other organizations where running a distribution center or a manufacturing operation is paramount to the team, the organization, the executives seeing that you have the right capability. So I guess I would suggest is you step back and you say, do I want to be successful in one business sector, pharma, uh, chemicals, do I want to have a broader base of skills that would allow me to lead teams differently based on those experiences? And then how do you chart a path to gain those skills? How do you find a mentor who will challenge you and how you think about getting those skills? And then build those experiences so that you can chart your own path and open your own doors. Um, I do believe that you're in charge of your own career. I think mentors and coaches can help you find a path. Uh, I think sponsors and companies can help open doors, but at the end of the day, it has to be your passion. And the only person who knows your passion is you, uh, maybe your significant other, right? They get to hear about it way more than anybody else. And they probably are a, a better mirror than you are for yourself sometimes, but do what brings you pleasure and do what you feel really confident in as it will continue to open doors. I think that's some great advice to conclude on Sandra before we jump to questions. So just want to extend my gratitude for your time today and sharing your story and your advice. Um, I think we've had some great turnout today. I'm really excited to see those folks that are listening in. So I'm going to give it to, I'm not sure, maybe some folks uh, that are helping to facilitate with us on the back end to ask some questions with the community. Great. 